Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kalise Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, a new children's book by Larry Spotted Crow Man, The Adventures of Kateo, and how this story of a young boy on the coast engaging with nature can teach volumes about nature, community, culture, and more. And word nerd Emily Brewster, senior editor from Merriam-Webster, answers a listener question from Mike in Holyoke about ER versus more. And we fall down a rabbit hole in order to make our adjectives specificer. Or more specific, if you will. Maybe. But our first guest has a whole trailer to introduce her. There's always more to the story. I'm one of the just over 2% of physicians in the U.S. who are black women. I had never met a black woman who was a doctor. Actually, I'm the only black physician in the hospital at this time. That statistic hasn't really changed much in the last few decades. People study disparities, but like, what about interrogating them? What about changing them? You know, what about disrupting them? Faces of Medicine is a documentary project directed by Dr. Kama Ennis, celebrating the paths of some of the black women who represent only 2.8% of physicians in the United States. These stories tell the paths of some of these amazing people who are taking care of all of us. The documentary shares their journeys, successes, and struggles while reflecting on the allies and challengers who got them where they are. Faces of Medicine will present three Valley screenings during Black History Month starting February 1st at Bombix in Florence, at the Lava Center in Greenfield on February 16th, and at Holyoke Media on February 29th. The screenings will feature Amherst resident, physician, and director of the documentary, Dr. Kama Ennis. Dr. Ennis spent 20 years as an emergency physician, including five years as the chief and medical director of the Cooley Dickinson Hospital Emergency Department. She has since shifted her focus towards health equity and integrative health. I can say words. (laughs) She developed Faces of Medicine to demonstrate the need for diverse representation in medicine, starting with increasing the numbers of black female physicians. She joins us now, finally. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm like losing it here. We're glad to make a doctor nervous in our lobby waiting for us. I see see your schadenfreude. I see the the light in your eyes. And I raise you one. (laughs) Thank you for joining us, though. This is great. And uh, we've seen the trailer and we've also got to see a little bit behind the scenes into your creative process behind this project. Yeah, and cool. I, I found out about this. Uh, you were you are a part of a another workshop with PRX and uh, one another previous guest of the show, um, Erica Slocum, mentioned this project to me, and I was like, oh yeah, no, we absolutely need to talk to her about this because this is a very interesting uh, and definitely not paid attention to section of of just the industry in general, the medical industry in general, I feel like. And looking back on it, like my mom's a nurse uh, and has been for most of my life and worked in urban areas or in clinics. And I remember seeing black male doctors. But when you mentioned this, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. No, all the nurses were women, were black women and uh, brown women. But the doctors were almost entirely male and when they were female they were definitely white so this is it's wonderful to be shining a light on this how did you come to want to do it in film so uh so thank you for again thank you for having me and i think what it came down to was when i was looking to make a career shift and recognized that at that time at cooley dickinson i was one of only two black female physicians and it's different now but that's how it was for most of the time that i spent there and knowing that I was leaving and that would leave this this massive gap in terms of who people could potentially see. And the teams there are amazing. I love them. But I want them to be able to see people who look 
like everybody that's represented in our community. And so I wanted to share stories. I started out with wanting to share my own story and then thought, you know, the, the way to really bring people into the space is to show them lots of different stories. So stories of people who have experienced homelessness, who are immigrants, who have, you know, 200 years of ancestry in the Deep South, all kinds of different stories. And, you know, to, to put it into a documentary to just really reach people more emotionally, I thought would be uh, an insane but really wonderful project. <laughs> I'm curious about what your relationship is to black female doctors or black doctors in general before you became a doctor. Was there somebody in your life that you encountered that inspired you to become a doctor in the same way that you kind of want Faces of, of Medicine to do this going forward? Absolutely not. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I don't know what it was. I think I woke up one day in like second or third grade and at some point I'd been categorized as a smart kid and I decided that, you know, smart kids could be doctors or lawyers. And being a doctor seemed more interesting to me at the time. And I just stuck with it. You know, just the way that a second grader gets a really stubborn hold on an idea. And that was it. I wasn't a sick kid. I didn't have, you know, ill relatives. I just stuck with that and nobody told me not to. Um, so I was pretty lucky in in that regard of not having people actively dissuade me ah. <laughs> from that, especially my family, because there were no doctors in my family. There are a couple now, but there were none at the time at all. Was there any black doctors at all that you encountered before you went into medical school? I didn't meet a black doctor until I was starting my fourth year of medical school. Wow. That was that was the very first time. And I don't think, you know, until that moment, I hadn't really recognized it because the default, you know, for myself and for most of us in this culture, the default image of a physician does not look like me. And so that's part of what I really want to shift in that is to sort of expand our imaginations, both for people who look like me and people who don't, of what their doctor might look like. We're speaking with Dr. Kama Ennis, who's behind Faces of Medicine, this documentary that will present its first episode three times in the Valley in February, the first at Bombix, which our engineer Betsy is reminding us to say is an underwriter, <laughs> um, at the Lava Center in Greenfield on February 16th and at Holyoke Media uh, the last day of February, which is a leap year this year. It's going to be March 1st. Oh, it moved to March 1st? Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll, cor I'll correct it in our script. I'm sorry. That's my fault. There we no, go. It's totally mine. All, of, all of the everything says that it's, it's, it's the different. It, yeah, February 29th is fake. March 1st. So exactly. it's, it Time all is perfect. Um, Except for deadlines. Those are very real. Um, the doctors in this documentary in, and series of them, are they all from from Massachusetts or, or like like northeastern U.S.? So this first episode is all Massachusetts-based physicians, including the very first black woman to ever earn an MD in the U.S., which was back in 1864. Um, but the rest of the series is going to really bring in other ge geographical areas. And so we've got Alabama, which I had never been to before this project. We've got California. I've got physicians that I'd like to interview in the middle of the country as well, in Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota, just to really create... to. to really show us a broader map of who of who's out there because I don't think again it's not part of the general cultural imagination to see us in this way. I know one of the doctors that's featured in it comes from your alma mater of Cooley Dickinson Hospital and is now uh, the head of Cooley Dickinson Hospital as the CEO and the president Dr. Lynette Watkins who is a black female doctor. Tell us about that part of the documentary and, and connecting with Dr. Watkins. So that was that was really fun. Um, Dr. Watkins was incredibly gracious. She had not yet started the job, but she had been hired into the job. And so I thought, well, you know, this is probably a little bit out of line, but she can always say no. So I reached out to her. <laughs> 
said, hey, I'm, and it was the very, very beginning of the project. So I said, hey, I'm starting this project. I'm interviewing black female physicians, and I would love to share your story as part of that. And she didn't hesitate. She, you know, opened herself up immediately to to spend some time, share her story, and was just gracious with that, which was wonderful. So I've known, I've gotten to know her better since then. <laughs> but, but she just sort of jumped right in, which is wonderful. I know everybody's experience is different, but are there certain commonalities that are a little off the beaten path that you've discovered in talking to other black women doctors? Absolutely. I think, you know, I've one of the things I've discovered in the interviews is how different the paths really are. But the the experience of having more than a, more than a few times, probably more than a few times any given month, walking in to, to greet a patient and just having that moment where they where they don't quite know what to do because they didn't expect you to be a black woman, unless they'd researched you ahead of time, if they knew ahead of time. But most folks have had some pretty challenging encounters, um, not necessarily with people being mean or cruel, though sometimes they are, uh, but mostly just having to get over that hump to start the clinical encounter so that you can just really work with the person in front of you. And just having to adjust around that is something that I think we've all experienced. I'm imagining that the reverse might also be true, though, if you are if you have a black patient or especially a black female patient where they might be delighted and thrilled, especially if they didn't know before. Has that happened? Absolutely. That's, <laughs> those, are, those are super special moments because most folks, you know, especially in New England, yeah. haven't had that opportunity. Just the demographics of New England are different. And some of us are still looking. Right. <laughs> Active. Have you met Dr. Kama Ennis? <laughs> Not practicing in the area. I need to pick up a doctor on. But like, I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine who's yeah. come here um, and is black and was asking me for advice about who to like get as a PCP. And I'm like, lady, if you find out anybody, please share because I don't know. And I know when I was looking for my PCP, I was specifically looking for a woman of color for this exact reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you ever had a black or a black female doctor in your entire time going I've to the doctor, please? I mean, in my whole life? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. But like black female, no. Mm-hmm. Um, black, yes. But like it was ages ago and it was definitely like it, it, here it was like me being very young. Other than that, it was like when my family moved to Maryland is when it happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. And imagine the demographics, as you were mentioning, different in Maryland, perhaps, than they are Little bit. in Massachusetts. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> A couple more chocolate chips in the cookies. <laughs> we're speaking with Dr. Akama Ennis, who is behind the new documentary, Faces of Medicine, which will be screened three times in the Valley in the near future, the first being February 1st at Bombic Center for Arts and Equity in Florence, then at the Lava Center on February 13th in Greenfield, and then at Holyoke Media on March first. <laughs> this is not the first time showing it. The first time that this got shown, this section of the documentary, because it, again, it's going to be a series, was shown at Amherst Cinemas um, a while back. Is there anything different about the way that it's going to be shown this time as opposed to when it was shown in Amherst? So it's going to be just a little bit different, but we, you know, when we had it at Amherst Cinema, we had the screening and we had a panel discussion that we were lucky enough to have two of the physicians who were featured in it participate in that panel. And that was a really wonderful event. And so what we're doing for the next couple of screenings that we've got locally is we'll, we'll be doing the screening, but we'll do a Q&A more afterwards because I don't think I can, <laughs> I can ask them to give even more of their time. Um, I'm hoping that one of them makes a, a surprise appearance, but we'll see if, uh, if we can make that happen. 
happen, but we'll do a Q&A just to really give folks the opportunity to ask questions that they probably haven't had the opportunity to ask over the course of their lives, really. Are you going? Are you saying that these doctors might be a little too busy to show up to the movie that they're featured in? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, all right. <laughs> they are doctors, <laughs> They after are doctors. All. Yes. Well, why don't we take a little break, and then we'll talk more with Dr. Kama Ennis, who is behind Faces of Medicine. I want to hear about this first uh, black female doctor from Massachusetts that you cover in this documentary and hear a little bit about her story. Later in the show, is it thoughtfully or more thoughtful? more healthy or healthier. Word nerd Emily Brewster helps us get to the core of a listener question about adjectives. And we'll speak with Larry Spotted Crow Man about his new children's book, The Adventures of Kiteo. And more with Dr. Ennis coming up on The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. When black women tend to step into rooms, we're not just only looking out for black women. We are looking out to improve the entire environment, the entire system. And I think when we step in to actually open things up for ourselves, we end up opening new possibilities for the whole systems. People like me had never met a black woman who was a doctor, who was a lawyer, who were all of these things that um, seemed to be possibilities for young men. So I think telling that story and um, also celebrating that it's so different now is uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited about your project. And that project is Faces of Medicine, and seeing your own face in the faces of what you want to do and who you want to be is an important thing. Representation does matter, and the person behind this Faces of Medicine documentary joins us right now, Dr. Kama Ennis. There was uh, a reference earlier in our conversation to the first black female doctor ever to receive an MD being from Massachusetts in 1864. Did I get that right? So partially. So she she was from uh, Delaware and grew up in the Philadelphia area, but then came to work in Boston as a nurse. Uh-huh. And some of the physicians that she worked with and for saw this potential in her. And so she they encouraged her and probably helped facilitate it. I can't imagine it was easy to start medical school in 1860 uh, at the New England Female Medical College, which has eventually become Boston Medical Center. And so she graduated in 1864. And one of her professors actually was Elizabeth Caldwell, who was the first black or first woman to earn an MD in the U.S. period. So, And what, what was this doctor's name? I don't think we've mentioned her name yet. Uh, oh, Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Oh Rebecca my gosh. Lee Crumpler. So <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Absolutely. And so when you do this in the documentary, who did you end up speaking to to learn about what uh, her story? So we went to the uh, Boston Museum of African American History and spoke with Lamercy Fraser, who was their director of education. And she was really able to take us through that story. The location of the of the museum itself is in the African Meeting House. And that was the center of the black community in Boston for quite some time. And so there was a lot of education and medical care provided in that area. And she lived just a few doors down from where that space is right now. Go ahead. No, I just like it's it's interesting to see like the the first black female doctor and like coming at a time right after other contributions. Um, on what is the word? non-consenting contributions to medicine that black women have given (laughs) over the course of the years. Um, Especially because I think like she was basically like a a GP, like she she Mm -hmm. covered everything. But gynecology is one of those major points. Um, And if you don't necessarily know about the the connection between black women and the um, development of gynecology, I suggest you read up on the subject. But um, are there connections that people feel because of 
like the contributions, however willingly that black people and especially women have given to the fields of medicine in order to continue that and continue doing more in perhaps a better and more willing light. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, voluntary or chosen work is certainly a much better way to uh, to be in this space. And, you know, the work that she did both in providing care, and she actually wrote a book that she published in 1883, which was one of the first of its kind, helping people help themselves, um, providing just guidance around a lot of basic care and, and approaches to taking care of oneself. So I think that being able to come into this space now and take care of a broader community is incredibly important. And this is not to say, and I don't want anybody to think I'm saying that only black doctors should take care of black patients. That is not what I'm saying. <laughs> but I, I do know, and there's data behind the fact that healthcare outcomes improve for everyone when there's diversity in spaces and in our providers. And that can be a matter of the care provided or the trust in those care providers. And so I think being able to be part of that solution is something that is really appealing to a lot of folks. And I want people to know that this is an option for them. That being said, I'm sure that there's something to having a shared experience. I mean, as a child, I had a female German doctor uh, for my entire time as a kid, which and I never seemed strange or, or weird to me at all. She's a wonderful doctor. Um, but if you see yourself in that doctor, what are some of the benefits that come along with that? And that maybe that you hear as a doctor or did hear, especially when you were you know, over at Cooley, when you are seen by your doctor in a face that looks similar to yours. Absolutely. I mean, I think there there are life experiences that may or may not be, that, that, that may be more likely to be similar. There are things that don't have to be said necessarily uh, because you've experienced that. If there's, a, if there's an issue with hair, right? right, as a black woman, I have had every iteration of hair you could imagine. And not having to have explicit conversations and break that down for somebody if there's a head or scalp-related concern, I think is really important. Um, I think there, there's a lot to to that common shared experience. And just, you know, the notion of trust, I think, is something, especially given the history of medicine and the ways in which black bodies were used um, to develop a lot of uh, innovations in medicine over the years. I think having a person who's in front of you who you know is not going to do that to you mm. is mm. very important. There's definitely an element of this that's not just about representation, but about outreach. Mm -hmm. So what in what ways are you looking to use this documentary to encourage more folks to maybe join despite the long hours, lack of free time, uh, other things that come into the medical field when you don't necessarily <laughs> look like the wealth of people there. I will tell you. So I, I went to and I went to uh, to med school uh, and residency before they changed the work hours and they, before they put work hour restrictions on so that just so that, you know, residents are now able to work no more than 80 hours a week. That's the cap unless a program gets an exception. So and I would still do it again. <laughs> just to put that out there. But I think that, you know, being able to see the successes and being able to see what's wonderful about the practice of medicine, it really is a gift to be able to provide this for for the for the community. Um, and I want people to see themselves in these spaces. So reaching out to people who could join the ranks, reaching out to the people who could support them, who might see a spark in somebody and might be the person to say, hey, you know, have you ever considered a, f the career, a career in medicine? That might 
make somebody feel like something is possible that they would never have imagined. And what I'd like to do sort of beyond this is we've actually haven't done work on it yet, but have uh, created a nonprofit called Diversify Medicine to really help to build that pipeline, to create a virtual mentorship network, to create opportunities to help fund med school applications, you know, because it's very expensive to apply. It's very expensive to take the MCAT before you even get in the door. And I think there, and also to create a database that shares a lot of the organizations that are doing this work already, because there's plenty of people trying to help diversify medicine. I'm not, obviously, I'm not the first person to come up with this idea, but trying to do my part to, to forward the, the movement. Oh. And your part includes this documentary, Faces of Medicine, the first episode of which will screen three times in the next month. The first, February 1st, at Bombix in Florence. The second at the Lava Center in Greenfield on February 16th. And then at Holyoke Media on March 1st. <laughs> Dr. Kama Ennis from Amherst. Um, when will we be able to see the other episodes of this and where? Well, that is a fantastic question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we are actively working on episode two. This is an entirely donor-funded project. This is an independent film, my first project of this nature. And so everything that we've been able to do, we've done with the help of incredible donors from the community and businesses. I want to give a, a quick shout out to our sponsors for the screenings that are coming up. Um, our sponsors at Greenfield Savings Bank, Greenfield Cooperative Bank, Tommy Carr Auto Group, and the Cancer Connection, and, uh, and much appreciation for the grant from the Mass Cultural Council and the Northampton Arts Council for supporting the grant at the, the screening at Bombix. Some of those might be underwriters we should disclose, but if they're not, they should be. Yes. <laughs> not to walk backwards because definitely are, am, but how long did it take to put this first section together? So from idea inception to complete episode, it was about two years. Um, and we've got the footage that we need for episode two. We just need to bring the band back together <laughs> when we've got the funding to, to run it across the finish line and then we'll share it. And as we are able to, you know, fundraise more and uh, at facesofmedicine.org. <laughs> and... <laughs> I love all this shameless plugging. I love it. <laughs> uh, then we'll we'll bring the other stories to you because it's it really is an incredible, um, it's, it's incredible the way that people are sharing their stories with really honesty that I wouldn't have imagined um, and courage that I wouldn't have imagined. And I think it is really an opportunity to move people's minds. And I'm excited for it. And you're like a little bit of insider baseball, but you might be shifting this or at least like paralleling this with a bit of a podcast, perhaps. Yes. Um, that's the goal. So <laughs> when, with, with any of these episodes, we're only able to share just, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes of any individual story. And these interviews are an hour, hour and a half long, and there's so much more to them. And I think that if somebody watches the documentary and there's a, a part of somebody's story that they really want to hear the full picture, I want that to be available uh, to folks. And so spinning the full interviews into podcasts and also eventually creating a collection of mini memoirs for people who are more likely to read than to listen, mm -hmm. um, I think is uh, just really wanting to get the stories out in as many ways as possible to spread the word. And Kalise and I were really lucky to get to hear a little bit behind the scenes on the, the podcast that's building right now. Yes. Dr. Kama Ennis, behind the now Episode one, but soon four, at least, episodes of Faces of Medicine. Episode one, the first one will screen three times in the next month. The first one being February 1st 
at Bombix. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been amazing. You are wonderful. <laughs> You're wonderful. You're wonderful. Later in the show, we'll go adventuring with Kateo in the land of the Nipmuc and the Wampanoag with storyteller and author Larry Spotted Crow Man, whose new children's book is The Adventures of Kateo. Up next, word nerd Emily Brewster answers Mike from Holyoke's question about the use of poorer versus more poor. And we'll be all the richer for it. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield, Massachusetts. As promised last week, we got an email from Mike in Holyoke. And we love to answer questions from listeners. We do get a lot of feedback from them. And what Mike and Holyoke wrote was, Dear Monty and Khalees, love the show, especially your segments with word nerd Emily Brewster. One thing that's been bugging me for years is the declining use of the suffix ER. As one example, taken from NEPM broadcast, a speaker chose more poor rather than poorer. Is this a general trend? I am mourning the brevity that accompanies the use of the ER suffix, Mike and Holyoke. What does the dictionary have to say about er? A lot, actually. Um, (laughs) There's a lot to say about adjectives and about how we treat them and adverbs. What we're really dealing with here is the idea of gradability and how we decide to enact the different forms of a gradable adjective or adverb. Uh So a gradable adjective is one that can vary in degree or what it's referencing can vary in degree. So you can, you know, something can be small, something can be smaller, something can be enormous, something can be more enormous. Something can be unique, something can be uniquer. Yes, actually, that is true. Although some people like to say that unique is an absolute adjective, which means that it is not gradable. It is non-gradable. Now, this is only true if unique only has the meaning of being, you know, an individual that is unlike any others. And it does have that meaning, but it also has other meanings. Because language changes. So don't get angry when people say that's more unique, even though a little part of me dies every time that happens. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're you're looking at it as like distinguish, then you can say more distinguished, in which case you can say uniquer. Yeah, I mean, you really can. I mean, you can. And then and then there's also the question, of course, if you should, because, right. Monty, you feel like people really, really shouldn't. But, no, I like to, save, like to save words like that. But language <laughs> changes, Monty. I know, I know. I don't judge. I just silently judge. <laughs> I do like to think about what words are truly not gradable, because yes. it's actually a pretty small set of words. A unique, arguably, I think it's, it's not really. But, um, you know, the word ultimate, is that gradable? Can you have something that is more ultimate than another? I don't think so. It's the ultimist. Well, right. Well, whether you can do it linguistically and whether you can do it semantically, like, you know, is, is, those are different questions. That sounds like a really bad wrestling name. I'm the ultimist warrior. <laughs> I come to bring the warriors together as one. I'm macho man Randy Savage. I mean, that you could do. I guess so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But no one was more macho than Randy Savage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, macho you, man. And you wouldn't say macho you know, back to Mike and Holyoke's question here. There are times to use the ER and there are times to say more macho. And and, and in a minute, we're going to get to the various rules because there is, there, they're not rules, really. There is a set 
of data points that tell us how these words are typically formed. Mm-hmm. And m- macho, according to these rules, really should be machoer. Oh, oh okay. Uh-huh. You made a lot of promises to the macho man, didn't you? Promises that you didn't keep. But but just to talk about the, the words that aren't gradable, that you can't do this with, right? Ultimate, penultimate means second to last. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean the most Pen, ultimate. Penultimate warrior is a terrible wrestler. That is an awesome. <laughs> he's, like a, he's a pretty good wrestler, actually. When you oh, really he's think really about good. Yeah, really, he's, he's almost he's winning every yeah. time. You are nothing but a normal. Yeah. He's a mini boss. He might not be Rowdy or Roddy Piper. No. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubble gum. Anyway. Are these real people? Yes. Well, the source adjectives make them real people. <laughs> the other ones are, I guess, people who have taken up the mantle. Sadly, having... they all were real people. They're they, not anymore. Yeah, not any of them. Yeah. Did Ultimate Warrior yeah. pass away? Uh-huh. Oh. Anyway, we've really gone down the rabbit hole of what used to be called WWF. Yeah, I. there's <laughs> no reason either of us should have any of this information. No. That helps me because I have sorry. none of it. Continue, yeah. and we promise not to hit you from behind with a metal chair again with more wrestling references. So I am wondering if you two can think of uh, some words or a word that is not gradable that you can't say you know more or less about it. Do they all putting... have to deal with ends of things? Because I was thinking ultimate, penultimate, maybe perhaps like like something involving firsts. Do they all have to do with endpoints? No, but you're you're right that that is a common a commonality. Uh, think of a word like electronic. Okay, right? you can't have something that's more electronic or less electronic. Well, you could. Could you? you? If you're making right. an album and you're going to do the dance remix, you're going to make it more electronic. But you make it more electric. No, electronic. You're going to put in electronics. But you're putting in more electronics, electronics as a noun. The last you could make it sound electronic. more electronic. I think so that, <laughs> then it's an adjective, right? What about infinite? Can't be infinite, right? Or the infinitist. But can it be more infinite? Can it be very infinite? I don't think so, so. right? Doesn't infinite imply that it goes forever? There's no more than forever, although I used to be like, well, I'm always infinity plus one when I was trying to like (laughs) outdo my sister or somebody like that. Infinity plus one is a usable thing in equations. So technically, yes. So then it could be more infinite. Yeah. Had to bring math into it. Sorry. My favorite non-gradable adjectives are exactly the ones that you pinpointed, Kalise. <laughs> All of the numbers, first, second, third, millionth, <laughs> right? You can't have something that is more first than another. Hmm. I it's guess the you're first right. one in a series. It has that, it occupies that place. So in truth, there. while I say that the class of non-gradable adjectives is quite small, it's actually infinite. <laughs> <laughs> But is it infiniter? I don't think so. No. What about Mike's question here about the declining use of the suffix er as, you know, more poor as his example, as opposed to poorer? Is that a trend that you're witnessing? I looked into it with the best tool that I have for this kind of question, which is Google Ngrams. It's a way of, of seeing the trends in word use in Google Books, so in books that have been scanned by Google. And because that set of books is, um, they, don't, they don't provide a list of all the books that they have scanned, not that I can find anyway. And it's a, uh, so it's a problematic source for data. So take it with a gigantic grain of anything. But according to what I saw in, in Google Ngrams, this is a, a way of looking at the granular data in Google Books, more and most poor, more poor, most poor were used more. They were used a lot, actually, in the 18th century. Then they started to decline over the course of the 19th century. 
started to climb again for the second half of the 20th century. And now it's trending down again. And the use of more poor, most poor in books that Google has has scanned is about even with the 1850 use. Huh. So this is a perception of Mike and Julio, but not necessarily a reality, at least when it comes to the word poor. And in books. Right. This might well, be it, a, a written versus spoken thing Yeah, as they're, well. bl- they're blaming N- NEPM's broadcast for this, this more poor use of the word poorer. Right, right. It's always impossible to know whether something is a is really a personal perception. If you just notice something and then you to see it everywhere, like with you know cars, right? You learn about a particular car and then you see it everywhere all yeah, of a sudden. I, I, that's um, so weird. Same thing happens with words. So or with trends in language, I can learn a new word and then all of a sudden I, I see it in other places and I'm like, oh, that's so strange. I'm seeing that new word everywhere when really the new word was perhaps not so new and I just hadn't noticed it before. Like later today, the, you're going to look at your phone and you're going to have all these things with Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> we're ruining your Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah, we're ruining it all. Oh, yeah. I don't really want that in there. <laughs> but here here are the rules. The other interesting thing to me about Mike's question in particular about poor is that, um, well, we're just going to have to go through the rules. I'll try to be pretty quick. Okay. okay. In general, if you have an adjective that is just a single syllable, like the word small, okay. then you can usually just add ER or EST to it, right? Small, smaller, round, rounder, roundest, unless it's an exception. This class is also pretty small. Ill, good, wrong, well, far, where far gets inflected with farther, farthest, but others are modified with more and most more frequently. So we don't really say ill-er. More ill has always been more common. Though as I say that, I think that's also a fluke of Google Books because iller is definitely, as like the slang use of iller is definitely more common than more ill. I know of several people with verses where somebody is the illest. Say you down the illest. Totally. Yeah. Let's say you have a poetic license to ill, then you can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> You're just talking about the Beastie Boys? Maybe. What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get Okay, another kind that is not modified with ER or EST is the set of adjectives that are actually participles. So a participle does everything that an adjective does, but it looks like a verb form. So like burnt, right? The toast is burnt. I, the toast has been burnt. It's a verb. But if you've got burnt toast, then it's an adjective. That toast is not burnter than mm-hmm. other toast. It's more burned. <laughs> uh-huh. So past okay. participles can't be erred. Yeah, I mean, except that except there are always exceptions. Right. Mm. Then, if your adjective has two syllables, people sometimes modify it with ere or est or or est, and sometimes not. If the adjective ends in a vowel, like the word gentle, which ends in a, a vowel you, you can only see, or with a vowel sound like mellow, then it will usually be the er est form. Mellower? Gentler, mm-hmm. mellowest. Huh. Two-syllable adjectives that end in an R or a T will allow modification with er or est, like tenderer, tenderest. Although certain words like eager and others really sound weird if you do it. Like eagerer, eagerer, eagerer is eagerest, eagerest, eagerest sounds, no, that sounds really weird too. Yes. Reclimbed Mount Eagerest. Yeah. Then, if you've got a two-syllable word that ends with a D, nobody knows, right? There's so many different, there's no real solid trend there. Like with the word solid, Mm. people say more solid, solider. Those are both about as equal. Then, two-syllable words that end in a consonant don't take er or est. This is a weird one. Like callous, you don't say calluser. That person was so callous. 
They were very callous. They were the most callous person, not they were the callousest. They were the callousest. I like that. This is a weird conversation for me. I know callous. <laughs> everybody, everybody calls Khalees callous. Not everybody. Sometimes. A lot of people, yeah. when they see my name for the oh, first time, yeah, they'll yeah, say yeah. callous. And yeah. I'm like, but why? There are two eyes. Callous. I mean, that's closer. <laughs> Still wrong, but better than callous. Yeah. If the adjective has three syllables or more, almost always you can't do er or est with it. Uh-huh. Unless, uh-huh. <laughs> unless it has the prefix un. And then you can, like unhappiest, unhappier. Uh, but you can't do like a confusingest, oh, for example. Yeah. There is no one right answer, and that is what we've learned here. There are some trends, there are some guidelines, and Mike and Holyoke, I appreciate the astute listening that you've done to the NEPM broadcasts and the fact that somebody said more poor rather than poorer. It, uh, maybe it is a general trend. You Maybe you can mourn the brevity that accompanies the use of the suffix er. We'll try to be thoughtfuler about it. Yeah. But is, is it really, I mean, they're both, it's just the same syllable count. More poor, poorer, those both have two syllables. Mm. So I do think that there is a lovely, elegant efficiency in poorer. Yes. And watch yeah. Poor Things, nominated for Best Picture. It's really good. In the good. Oscars, it's actually, it's very, very good. It's very, I'm curious about the book now. Thank you to Mike and Holyoke for uh, suggesting this question for our word nerd, and we're always excited to talk to you, the listener, about any linguistic queries that you may have. You can send them our way, thefab413 at nepm.org, and we'll ask our word nerd about them. Thank you, Emily Brewster. Thank you, Monty and Khalees. That's callous, or... No, it sure is not. <laughs> never, never callous just in case you were wondering. But up next, Larry spotted Crow Man sharing the story and pedagogy before behind his new book, The Adventures of Kiteo. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Larry Spotted Crow Man is a citizen of the Nipmuc tribe of Massachusetts. He's an award-winning writer, poet, cultural educator, traditional storyteller, tribal drummer and dancer, and motivational speaker involving youth sobriety, cultural, and environmental awareness. Larry's also a former board member of the Nipmuc Cultural Preservation Society, which is an organization set up to promote the cultural, social, and spiritual needs of Nipmuc people, as well as acting as an educational resource of Native American studies. Mann also serves as a review committee member at the Native American Poets Project at the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology. Mann is co-director of the Okateu Cultural Center and founder of the Native Youth Empowerment Foundation. And he can add to those accolades children's book author. His new book is called The Adventures of Kateo. Welcome back to the show, Larry. Thank you so much for having me, and um, <laughs> thank you for that little surprise of that music from the Quabbin Lake Singers. Uh, it was really, uh, that was a treat to hear that. That um, that recording goes back, I think, at least 17, 18 years. Because you have little, your kids were little in that. Yes. Tell, the Quabbin Lake Singers are you and your children, right? Yes, the Quabbin Lake Singers are me and my children, <laughs> which are now almost in their 30s. <laughs> uh, so that was, oh, thank you for sharing that. that that's the beauty of the internet. That's <laughs> So you are one of the founders of Okiteo, 
Yes. And your character's name is Kateo. Introduce us to Kateo and the maybe etymological similarity between those two words. Absolutely. So the cultural center, Okiteo, that means, that's a word, a Algonquin Nipmuc word, meaning a place to plant and grow. And uh, the word Kiteo is a very different word. Ah. That means um, it has a few meanings. It could mean infinity or it also means uh, those who have always been here. And it also happens to be the name of my little son, not the big ones. I have another one now. So <laughs> I love kids so much I made another one. So he's... <laughs> he's uh, don't encourage Don't him. encourage he's, me. He's yeah. trying to do that. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of energy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's now uh, four years old. And so when Ooh. I was developing this book, I wanted to, again... Um, uh, kids come in handy for art, as I said before. Mm. Uh, so that he's the he's the envis- he's the vision behind this this character here. It's that's him there in, in the uh, illustration. It's a beautiful book. How did and again like because I have a children's book out too, and I promised I was going to ask this. How did you connect with your illustrator for these really unique drawings in the book? So the illustrators are, and I was going to give a shout out to him. That's uh, Robert Peters Sr. and Robert Peters Jr. Uh, we are, they are members of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, and we've um, uh, been uh, part of our community for all our lives. So there are relatives, and these are folks I've knew. And also uh, Robert Peters, we connected on my other book, Drumming and Dreaming. He did the cover art for that. Uh, Robert Peters Jr., he's an absolutely amazing artist, much like his dad. And so um, when I began this project, I knew I had to call them. Um, and as I was saying in the acknowledgments there, he... Uh, uh, Robert Jr., he has a way of envisioning my words into, into picture. You know, he, he brings the tapestry alive of what I'm thinking and saying. And so I've always, uh, I knew he was the go-to person. And Kateo, in your book, visits the land, uh, well, is from the land of the Nipmuc here, mm-hmm. and then visits the land of the Wampanoag on the coast around Cape Cod. And tell us a little bit about what he's discovering here and there. Yeah, so the the premise of the book is uh, it's early education, it's curriculum-based, culture-based, uh, along the social development uh, spectrum. And so we wanted to do all that through the indigenous lens of storytelling. And so, uh, as we said, this is a Native Explorer series, so Kateo is going to travel throughout Native country, as we call it, Indian country. And so his first stop was Wampanoag land. And through his journey, he's uh, meeting uh, other other folks, he's learning, he's exploring, he's, he's solving problems, uh, again, along that social-emotional. And we see him uh, uh, kind of like exploring and learning and sharing. And this is a great uh, uh, introduction for our early education and uh, early readers to to not only normalize, but see see Native folks uh, and learn about culture. And, uh, and as you were uh, mentioning earlier, they're learning some Nipmuc words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew it was important to put the glossary <laughs> and pronunci- pronunciation in there. So it's really a fun book. It is. There's lesson plans in the back, too, which I always think is a, a, a great addition when there's a lot of things to learn and a, a lot of processing going on. Was that always part of the plan to include things to help people teach with this book? Uh, absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up. So um, uh, uh, my other three books, they're all, uh, I had um, the, uh, um, uh, uh, losing that, what's, Stories and Poems, which is a, a middle school book, and then I have the uh, young adult and the adult books that I've written. And this is my really first diving deep into the early education. So my partner, Raina Untenez, was a great help in that aspect of developing these questions in the back to help uh, educators and, and teachers along to kind of um, intersect this story with, with the, the educational component. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I just want to give a shout out to, to the team. And she was really, um, really instrumental in that piece of it and bringing that alive. And uh, my, also my good friend, Brian, 
uh, Shinnevert, uh, who was helping some of the components. And of course, my other good friend, um, Kim Frazier, who created a very unique portion of this book. It has a, its own unique map. I love this. Yes. It's yes. incredible. And that was done through geospatial analysis and hydrology. Very big word. So you can and, look at the map of what we call Massachusetts and see where the Nipmuc land was, where the Wampanoag land was, where the Mohican land is, and all that stuff. It's awesome. Yes, yes. And I want to give a special thanks to uh, Brett Random, who was the executive director of the Berkshire County Head Start, who uh, reviewed the book and absolutely loved it. And, uh, and you know, that was the, my raison d'etre, as it was, to, to, to get this book into the schools, uh, to normalize and, and share this kind of diversity and, and to show differences. And, uh, and, uh, and so that, that was a big reason behind this because, um, you know, there are only essentially 1% of Native American children's books on the market. Hmm. And, and uh, you know, and, um, according to the American Psychological Association, kids as young as three and four begin to reason and, and, and think about race in complex ways. And so if they're not seeing children of color, if they're not seeing black and brown children in books, if they're only seeing them on the news, uh, you know, and we, and we see what that problem has, has brought us thus far. And so we're really, it's really important to get these kind of books in the school, not just in the, in the big box stores, but in the classroom cur curriculum. So I knew I needed to make it curriculum based so teachers would bring it into their classroom from kindergarten, first and second, third grade. Right We're on. speaking with Larry Spotted Crow Man, whose new book is a children's book and curriculum with the maps and glossary and more. It's the adventures of Kateo. You have a, a theme for our hero, a musical theme <laughs> that you've written. Can we hear uh, it? Oh, yes. So um, being the artist that I am and all artists do these kind of things. So as I was developing the book, um, you know, to, to help my character Kateo stand out, he needed to have a motto. He needed to have his own slang, his own thing, as it were. <laughs> so... Throughout the book, you'll hear him saying, Hi, I am Kateo. I like to play. I like to explore. I look around, and I'm never bored. And so he'll say that a few times through the book, and that's going to be part of the whole series. And you'll know if you hear that, Kateo's coming. Nice. <laughs> um, and so being also a musician, I said, Well, you know, uh, if this ever goes to a TV series or, you know, animation, he needs to have a song. Mm. So I composed a song uh, for that theme, and I'm going to share it right now. And you've brought a drum with you. It's a beautiful drum. Yes, I never leave home without it. <laughs> so this is Kateo's official theme song, and you're hearing it here first time live. I've never sung this publicly before, and it's just fresh out the box. to play he likes to explore he looks around and he's never bored hey ah hey ah hey ah oh hey oh it's the adventures of Kiteo he likes to play he likes to explore he looks around and he's never bored hey ah hey ah Hey yo, everybody! It's the adventures of Kiteo. He likes to play. He likes to explore. He looks around and he's never bored. Hey 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 everybody! He likes to play, he 
likes to explore. He looks around and he's never bored. Hey ya, hey ya, hey ya, oh, hey ya, oh, <laughs> Larry Spotted Crow Man, the debut <laughs> performance of uh, Kateo's anthem there from the new book, The Adventures of Kateo. Are there elements of your Kateo that are in that song or that you brought to this particular, to this character? Um, absolutely. So um, so one of the things uh, uh, when uh, Monty was uh, jokingly saying about children, so what, this is what I do. I have uh, two small children now, and so I just watch them. And, and just see what they do, and they kind of lead these kind of stories. Um, that's the best way to develop a character of a children's book is just to watch children, be around them. They may drive you crazy, but they're giving you all the material <laughs> you ever need. So that's, yeah, certainly. And we keep mentioning that there's a map at the back of this book. There's lesson plans and questions you can ask. Um, and there's also a glossary. And Kateo is one of the words in there, the nipmuc word for he who has been here since the beginning is what it says. But this one is going to help me settle a family dispute. Because my wife and I okay. say this word differently. Can you say correctly how to pronounce the second word in your glossary? One, two, three. Quahog. Quahog says Larry Spotted Crow Man from the Nipmuc people using this word that the Wampanoag use frequently. People from Rhode Island call it Quahog. Oh, well, that's Rhode Island. Yeah. <laughs> They, they have they have coffee milk, right? So I do like the coffee, coffee milk. milk is delicious. Coffee milk is good. The Auto Crack Company. We don't need to get into that too much. Uh, this book is really fun. Um, it, where is it available right now? So you can go to my website, whisperingbasket.com. Uh, to get copies. And also, it was important, as I mentioned, I wanted to get this in school. So it's available through Ingram, and you'll get that big old discount if you buy it through Ingram, all the schools. So shout out to that. And a big shout out to um, uh, Columbus, Ohio, who bought over 250 copies. Wow. I'm going to be going there in June to the Columbus, Ohio school systems out there. Oh, neat. Uh, to, to share this book with them. And also, I'll be sharing this book during the signing March 16th at the Springfield Museum. Excellent. Awesome. That's not even announced yet, so that's another uh, surprise yes. for our listeners of the Fabulous 413. March 16th with Larry Spotted Crow Man and the new book, The Adventures of Kateo. Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Oh, of course. Thursday on the Fabulous 413, we'll bring another local author, Ann Pinkerton, to the studio to speak about her memoir, Were You Close? A nuanced look at family ties, loss, and personalizing grief. And we'll dance through those feelings that we stir up with the School for Contemporary Dance and Thought, who are in the middle of collaborating with the young at Heart Chorus on a new performance. Plus our weekly chat with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern. Got a question for the Congressman? Email us thefab413 at nepm.org. I think he has a lot to say about the primaries, probably. I'm sure he does. I mean, we do too. Yeah. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413.